Thanks very much, uh, Eugene. I have to live up to that wonderful, uh, <laughs> that wonderful introduction. Let me thank very briefly at the start, you know, the, the credits roll. Let me thank the Middle East Center for hosting this event and the Center for International Studies, where I'm currently um, a research associate for co-sponsoring um, the event. To work for the BBC, wrote an otherwise unknown individual called David Scott. In his letter of resignation from the BBC, was like having sexual relations with an elephant. <laughs> first, I'm sorry to go on, some, some people cut the quote short at that point, but first he said, because there is no possible pleasure involved. Secondly, be because of the grave danger of being overlaid. And thirdly, because there was no possibility of seeing any results for 21 months. <laughs> Well, um, I was aware of the elephant, <laughs> as we all were, as the bureaucratic elephant. And um, in a sense, we all had to live with that. And I, don't, I think that's one of the features of this really rather unique, one-off kind of organization throughout its life. It's changed hugely. And some of its changes I'm going to try and reflect in my remarks. Um, but the friendly or not always benign elephant, it's, it's always been, I think. One of my earliest and fondest memories of Bush House, then the home of the World Service where I worked for, for 24 years of my life, is of those inimitable headlines. The 30th anniversary of the Hungarian uprising passed off peacefully today in Budapest. Now, some of you in the room are journalists. Just think about that journalistically for just a moment. There are obviously first the plummy tones, which I can't entirely emulate, of the newsreader, now redolent of a bygone age. But think a bit beyond the tones of the newsreader. There's the unmistakable Cold War context, and also the rather obvious fact that nothing had happened in Budapest that day. And it was rather, this at least I think was the sort of tone of the thing, it was rather as if Auntie had been watching closely but in vain and was just a tiny bit disappointed. <laughs> I can think of no other organization that would have broadcast such a story in such a way, and my own feelings of affection tinged with just a little exasperation uh, have stayed with me ever since. There's much to admire about the BBC. I don't regret my 24 years working for it, the good times and the bad. But there's also much to criticize. When an organization projects itself as a public service operating to the highest possible standards, we're entitled to expect it to adhere to those standards. Bush House in the 1980s was a remarkable place. We broadcast in over 40 languages. There are fewer than 30 today. We were badly paid, 
but we saw ourselves as an elite, a cut above our colleagues in other parts of the BBC, not just because we had a worldwide audience of something like 120 million, 120 million, but because we simply believed what we did was uniquely important. I remember endless discussions and post-mortems about whether we were getting it right, about exotic names and how to pronounce them, how to translate rapid deployment force into Arabic or Urdu. Now, I'm not joking here with this next one, whether to refer to Miss Bhutto or Mrs. Bhutto. Uh, you can think about that if you like. She was a Bhutto, but she wasn't married to a Bhutto. And there was no way you would refer to a woman politician in those days as Bhutto or Thatcher. She had to have, she had to be a Miss or a Mrs. or something. And we spent a long time uh, agonizing over it, believe it or not. And perhaps more seriously, whether we debated whether to use the term fundamentalist, and I like to think I played a very small part in getting the term Islamist accepted on air. I don't say it's perfect, but I think it's better than the alternatives. I began writing for the Arabic service. I, I wrote talks. I typed them on an old typewriter. There were no computers. Messengers, usually young men, would bring the agency tape, the Reuters, the Associated Press, the Agence France Press, and the rest, and you'd call out to complain that they'd brought page two. They'd pull it off, a great roll of Reuters and a great roll of AFP. They'd hey, you brought me page two, where's page one? Before my talks were translated and broadcast, they were handed in for scrutiny by the head of the Arabic service. Always an Englishman in those days. And I felt I was back at school and my essays were being marked out of 10. How impartial were we? This is really the theme I want to address this evening. The BBC, after all, played an unashamedly patriotic role in both the Second World War and, in a slightly different way, the Cold War. It had not set out to speak truth to power. That idea would have been alien, I think, to the founding father of the BBC, the Scottish Presbyterian Lord Reith. That role of questioning the politicians, in particular British politicians and leaders, evolved over time as broadcasters became less deferential and as they faced growing competition from the independent broadcaster. This is in the, in the 19, early 1950s, ITN. In other words, the BBC has had to fight to establish and then maintain its independence from government. Every government tries to bend it to its will, but they usually fail. Conservatives, not just conservative politicians, accuse the BBC of a liberal bias. But the idea that a room full of Guardian reading liberals is incapable of objectivity seems to me to miss the point by a mile. I don't care if journalists read the Wall Street Journal or the Beano any more than I care whether in their own time they're binge drinkers, bird watchers, or born-again Baptists. I care whether they do their job. No, the central issue to my mind is not whether the BBC is a nest of liberals, or on the contrary, as Tony Benn once memorably argued, not in public but in a cabinet meeting, I think, 
that the BBC was a sinister arm of the establishment, as dangerous, he said to his cabinet colleagues, as the medieval Catholic Church. <laughs> no, the central issue is that the BBC is a public service broadcaster, not a commercial one. This sets it apart from all the other media. The BBC broadcasts, and its charter insists on this, in, I quote, in the national interest, unquote. The corporation is left, the BBC is left, to, de to determine what that rather loaded phrase actually means in practice. But one result of the way the charter was drawn up is that inevitably, by the nature of things, its relations with the government of the day, whether Labour, Conservative or whatever, are always strained, especially in time of war, and the more controversial the war, think Suez 1956, think Iraq 2003, the greater the tension between government and broadcaster. And this is what I'm going to return to in a couple of minutes, the Iraq, uh, Tony Blair, Iraq, and all that. But first, excuse me if I derobe. Now you can see the color of the... No, never mind. <laughs> but first, a word on two very important issues, very important and highly sensitive issues with which I was closely involved. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the whole web of issues surrounding Islam and Islamism and all of that. I traveled fairly widely in the Middle East before I joined the BBC and had come back with sympathy for the Palestinians and I have to say, not much sympathy for Islam or religion in general. On the Israeli-Palestinian issue, public opinion in Britain and, for that matter, in Europe had begun to change as I got going in the BBC, a little bit before, but in the 80s. The 80s was an absolute hinge, I think, in West European perception of this issue. And it began to change significantly. Public opinion had hitherto been largely pro-Israeli, and in various ways the media had tended to reflect this. Now people were becoming more aware of the Palestinian side of the story and more willing to criticize Israel when they felt it was right to do so. And this too was reflected to a degree in various ways in the media. And I'm not suggesting that the sole job of journalists is to slavishly follow public opinion, but I don't think they can ignore it either. And I think that consciously or unconsciously, for that matter, they are influenced by it. It's part of the context, the social and public context in which they work. Where's me water? So there was a change, and I call it a sea change. And we can discuss the reasons for it later. My time is uh, quite rationed, or at least I've rationed it to give me time to talk about Blair and Iraq and so on. My po main point is this, however flawed you may think the general coverage of this issue is, it was much worse before this sea change occurred. I would only add, and I think it needs to be said, that Israel and its friends fought back and fought back hard. And the result, I think, as far as the BBC is concerned, is what I would call a certain defensiveness on the part of the BBC, a failure to show confidence 
from time to time anyway, in its confidence in its journalism when it comes under fire. I don't accept the idea of some kind of Middle East exceptionalism, that the Middle East is different from any other conflict zone or any other region of the world, and that somehow the normal rules don't apply. I, I just don't accept that. I think it's a false premise uh, which can only lead uh, in the wrong direction. Drink. Put it there and then I'll know where it is. With regard to Islam, a huge topic, and I will say only a couple of things, but I began to travel widely for the BBC, not just in the Middle East, in Asia, Europe, United States, to make feature programs, and almost always they were feature programs about Islam and Islamism. I later used these experiences as the basis of a book, my first book. Forgive the plug, but if you want to know what I got up to, my adventures in southern Thailand, which as some of you may know is predominantly Muslim, read the book. The, of all my experiences in different parts of the world, I think that was probably the oddest. Not the most dramatic, but the strangest. And I won't tell you why. The book's called The Muslim Revolt, um, A Journey Through Political Islam. And of course it was my journey, or rather a series of journeys, in which I tried to say something. And I wrote it out of Real frustration, really. It seemed to me there was very little understanding of Islam and a tendency to make the wildest generalizations about a faith which today comprises one quarter of humankind. Covering Islam after 9-11, well, especially after 9-11, and now in the aftermath of the Paris attacks, is, in my judgment, one of the most acutely difficult challenges journalists have faced in recent years. And I only wish that we as a tribe had risen to that challenge more magnificently. I started out, like many of my colleagues, as a secular liberal, rather suspicious of religion. But I changed. My wife will tell you too much. She doesn't like this. I changed as I began to realize, in my own mind at least, that we had to open our minds to Muslim concerns and Muslim grievances, especially if we wanted to understand radicalization and that whole bunch of issues. In our multicultural age, journalists who are, seem to me admirably sensitive to issues of race and ethnicity and gender can be extraordinarily insensitive, or so it seems to me, to issues of faith and religious identity. I've mentioned how severely wars test the BBC and all media organizations. They can, to a certain extent, make or break media reputations. Think of the rise uh, of Al Jazeera through the wars that it was covering in its youth. I've been reading just recently, Gene Seaton's excellent book with the rather memorable title, Pinkos and Traitors. Um, the term Dennis Thatcher, Maggie's husband, kind of allegedly used about the BBC journalists in that column in Private Eye. But do we really think Margaret and Dennis Thatcher did not think that people like me were pinkos and possibly traitors. Uh, I think it's, uh, and that's why she chose it as her title, I think, 
Um, and the war that she, she covers the period, the, the Thatcher years, uh, and Thatcher was furious with the BBC over the Falklands War. You had to, you were the British Broadcasting Corporation. And the significance of that word British and in the national interest are keys really. Because the BBC can interpret them one way and the government of the day will almost, well, will very frequently interpret them another way. So we get to the Iraq war of 2003. And in my time as a journalist, no war was as painful for the BBC or for me personally for that matter as that war. You have to go back to the Suez War of 1956 to find a rift, a real profound rift between government and broadcaster of similar magnitude. I can't resist a plug for a book that began life here in Oxford as a defil supervised by Roger Owen. And it contains a critical account. It is really good revisionist history by a young scholar, as he was then, called Tony Shaw. The book's called Eden, Suez, and the Mass Media. With regard to Iraq, most of you will know the story. I'm going to talk in staccato sentences, in bullet points, but it's not so much the war over there in Iraq that I'm be talking about, but the war about the war uh, in London. In the run-up to the war, the Blair government sought to bolster its case by issuing a dossier. You remember the dossier? There were two dossiers, the dodgy dossier, which I'm not going to talk about, and the sexed-up dossier, which got the BBC, which got Blair and the BBC into no end of trouble. It was issued in the run-up to the war, the so-called sexed-up dossier. And among other things, the dossier made the dramatic claim that Saddam Hussein not only had weapons of mass destruction, but he could deploy them, you remember, within 45 minutes. A few months into the war, war, you remember, began in March 2003. In May 2003, a BBC journalist went on air early one morning to allege that the government had probably known that the 45-minute claim was wrong. I'm putting the word wrong in inverted commas here. This was the journalist's word, even as it made the claim. The journalist, of course, was Andrew Gilligan, defence correspondent of the Today programme. And the claim, he said, was part of the sexing up of the dossier by Downing Street. And in interviews subsequently, he made it clear that he meant Tony Blair's spin doctor, Alistair Campbell, himself a former tabloid journalist. Gilligan had a good source the government weapons expert, Dr. David Kelly, and a good story, an important story, but he bungled it. How could he prove at that point in time what was in the mind of the government uh, back then, when it, a few months earlier, when it had issued the dossier? And in any case, it turned out, among Gilligan's other errors, large and small, it turned out Dr. Kelly, though in, in my judgment, and I think most people would concur, although a perfectly credible witness, he had not been, as Gilligan had asserted, involved in actually compiling the dossier. And crucially, it turned out, 
Kelly hadn't actually said in so many words to Gilligan in that hotel near whatever it was, King's Cross Station, I can't remember, he hadn't actually said that the government knew the 45-minute claim was wrong. That was Gilligan's inference from what he'd said. I won't go into the tedious forensic detail, but from a sort of a script that he gave to his editor, Kevin March. It was not what I'd call a script, but a note. He'd intended to say a questionable claim, which is a much more weaselly word than wrong. Wrong has the connotation, you SOBs lied to us. It's not that explicit, but it's very strongly implied. Questionable means you weren't actually sure at the time, but you sexed it up to make it a dramatic headline, 45 minutes, uh, the 45-minute claim. But the BBC bosses stood resolutely by their man, and the whole thing escalated into a fierce war of attrition between the BBC and the government, and in particular, really, it was very personalised between the BBC and Alistair Campbell. After the government cynically leaked Dr Kelly's name as being Gilligan's source, Kelly was put under the intense heat. This was one of these very private, very English guys, proud of his integrity, and there he was put under the heat of media and parliamentary scrutiny. In July 2003, a couple of months after the Gilligan broadcast, Kelly's body was found dead near, in a wood near his home in his Oxfordshire village, unable to cope with the pressure he had apparently killed himself. Um, apparently, I'm told many in the village think that he was bumped off, but I'm, uh, I'm not going to go there. It fits the, the facts to say the guy couldn't take the strain something he'd never experienced in his life. I have no idea uh, whether he was bumped off, but I'm ready to say that the, fa the facts fit the proposition that he killed himself. I remember the moment when the news came in that the dead body had been found. It was a moment of awful, stunned silence. For a moment, though only for a moment, the vicious quarrel between Blair and the BBC, the rights and wrongs, seemed tawdry. A decent man had died. And who really was responsible for the fact that he was dead? I'm assuming now it was suicide. Who had driven him? The government? BBC? Or perhaps as if in some bizarre Agatha Christie thriller? All of us. I'll, I'll be brief now. Most of you know what happened. In response to his death, the government set up the Hutton Inquiry. To general, I stress, to general incredulity, Lord Hutton defined his brief in the narrowest of terms, declared Gilligan's report unfounded, and castigated the BBC and its editorial processes. Process he, processes he had evidently failed to understand. There were really comic moments when he tried to study. His learned judge was looking at the notes and the scribbles of Andrew Gilligan. Whatever journalists do and don't do, believe me, when they do a story, even a big story, they do not leave a paper trail which can therefore be followed on later on if there's all sorts of difficulty. They just don't. 
I would write on the back of an envelope before I went on air uh, with an, to do an interview. Uh, if I got it wrong, that was my fault. I didn't need to write a script on three sides of A4. It's not how the game works, but the learned lord did not follow this at all. So the Hutton report came out. The BBC board, the, the focus now switches to the BBC Board of Governors. They might have responded in time-honoured fashion by launching a rigorous internal inquiry. That at least would have bought them time and allowed tempers to cool. But the board did not do that. Instead, in the white heat of the moment, the board accepted the Hutton report in its totality, issued a blanket apology, and forced out, kicking and screaming, the BBC's Director General, Greg Dyke. What should we make of this whole wretched affair? I urge you to read Kevin Marsh's account called, got it here somewhere, Stumbling Over Truth. He was Gilligan's editor, but he hadn't appointed Gilligan. He'd inherited Andrew Gilligan. Anybody in the audience know who appointed <coughs> Andrew Gilligan? Rod Little. Rod Little. Yeah, you, would, you would say that. I should have said no, no ex-BBC person should answer that question. <laughs> Some of you may know who Rod Little is. Marsh had inherited him and was not overjoyed to inherit, so to speak, Andrew Gilligan. His book, incidentally, answers some questions. It's a book of passionate self-defense. Hutton never called Marsh to the inquiry. And this and Marsh is absolutely furious. It's a complex story in some senses. Uh, so I think we should take it as a very impassioned and very detailed piece of uh, testimony it doesn't answer all the questions to my, to my mind. Marsh, like many other people inside the BBC and outside, felt that Hutton had produced a whitewash of the government. And they drew comfort from the fact that the public seemed more inclined to trust the broadcasters than the politicians. Now, think about that for a moment. I'm not surprised that BBC bosses would say and Kevin Marsh would say, they trust us more than they trust the government. Isn't this a bit like saying, I trust journalists a little bit more than I trust estate agents? I don't find that a glowing <laughs> endorsement. <laughs> Maybe it's me. But anyway, yes, on the whole, the BBC uh, trusted, the, the public trusted the broadcasters more. Um, and then we have to add, it's obvious really to all of you, but um, no weapons of mass destruction were found in Iraq. In retrospect, the war, the case for war, looks deeply flawed. And a great many experts of no particular, of no one particular faction or viewpoint would now say that the British decision to go to war in 2003 was one of the greatest strategic blunders since the Suez affair almost half a century earlier. Water. Okay, all of that uh, I, I agree with, but the fact remains that the BBC suffered, I think, deep and lasting damage. Why had it employed Andrew Gilligan in the first place? Wasn't this by itself proof of the decline of a once great institution, the decline and to use a really 
horrible word, what some people would call the tabloidization of the BBC. When it discovered Gilligan's errors, why did the BBC not apologize sooner and try to draw a line under the whole affair? And why, having defended him, did it then, in the end, so abjectly capitulate? There's not much doubt, I think, that Gilligan and his immediate boss bosses, Marsh and the others, really believed in the righteousness of their cause. That's a rather sort of formal phrase. They believed they were holding the government to account. This helps to explain the intensity of this whole thing. Essentially, both sides were attacking, not explicitly, but clearly implicitly, the integrity of the other. The BBC to the Blair government and the Blair government to the BBC. The stakes were extremely high. Well, yes, they may have believed in the righteousness of their cause. I incl I'm inclined to think that. But they had fumbled the ball at a crucial, an agonizingly crucial moment. And the BBC paid a heavy price, a very heavy price for it. I'm drawing towards my concluding thoughts here, but there's a couple of paragraphs. What do I mean by a heavy price? I don't simply mean the loss of Greg Dyke and the chairman of the board. Uh, that's, that's a heavy price for an, an organization. What I mean beyond that is that a deeply wounded organization suffering from a chronic loss of self-confidence impairs its ability to produce first-class journalism and to speak truth to power. There has still been no public reckoning over the decision to go to war. And for this, we must await the much-delayed report of the Chilcot Inquiry, set up in 2009 by a fellow, do you remember him, Gordon Brown, when he was prime minister? The report, now scheduled to appear in June or July next year, has so far cost more than 10 million pounds. I draw two kind of related but distinct lessons from all of this. The first is how vitally important it has become for journalists to speak truth to power. I say become because I'm thinking of Lord Reith, who would, would not have said, I don't think he would have dreamt of saying the, the point of the BBC or one of its main purposes was to hold the British government to account in the way that a Robin Day or a Paxman would do. But it's evolved. Everything's evolved. Politics has evolved. The world has evolved. And the Middle East has evolved, has changed. And now it's vitally important, especially for an organization like the BBC, to speak truth to power, especially when a government goes to war and especially when it embarks on a controversial war and especially when that controversial war in this case has consequences which are still very much with us today, a dozen years on. Yes, there were journalists, just as there were some politicians who questioned the case for war. But did we in the media do enough? To their credit, the editors of the New York Times and the Washington Post apologized after the event for their failure to challenge the Bush administration over Saddam's alleged weapons of mass destruction. And believe me, there are few things media bosses hate more 
than a public apology on a matter of great importance. The second lesson I draw, and I really say this more in sorrow than in anger, is this. The episode highlighted in the starkest manner, in my judgment, many of the deficiencies of the modern news media. Their remorseless populism, their intellectual laziness, their short attention span, their preference for drama and spectacle over context and explanation. The BBC used to be immune to these defects, or largely immune. It is no longer. I suppose I regard it very much as I regard the National Health Service. I love it to bits, but I really worry about its future. Thank you.